0: There is a word in Pali called "Idi." It has a very special kind of meaning. It means the particular power of something, or the potency, it means the fulfillment bringing to fulfillment, or bringing to completion a particular situation. So, for example, the iddy of a bird could be considered its ability to fly, its power to fly. The iddy of an artist is his or her creative talent. The iddy of a scientist or a scholar might be the power of their intellect. So it's the power or potency in a very particular situation. Idi also refers to the kinds of psychic powers that can be developed through different kinds of meditation. There's a very traditional list of the kinds of powers that people can develop. The ability to create multiple bodies, to walk on water, to fly through the air, to look into the past, to look to the future, to read people's minds. The story of the Buddha's aunt, who actually raised him as he was a child, his mother died uh, shortly after giving birth, So he was raised by his aunt. Later when he became Buddha, his aunt was the one who requested for there to be the order of nuns. And she became a nun, she became an Ahant, fully enlightened. And she lived to 120. And just before she died, she was coming to pay respects to the Buddha. And the Buddha made a request of her, which was quite unusual, because he didn't usually do this. He requested her before she passed into Parinibbana, or the death of an enlightened being, said, please demonstrate uh, your powers so as to increase the faith of us lay people." And as it's said in the texts, she flew into the air and she dove into the earth and she touched the sun and she touched the moon and she did all this. And finally she came to the Buddha and said, is that enough? Please let me, <laughs> please let me come to rest. So the Buddha gave his assent and she passed away. So on rare occasions, you know, when, when it was felt appropriate, the Buddha either himself or would request of somebody to demonstrate these powers of mind. But mostly they're considered quite inferior, inferior it is, inferior powers. Because the Buddha saw the danger of these kinds of powers, the danger of getting attached to them and really losing sight of what the teaching is all about. This iddy of psychic power is inferior to the iddy of understanding. the Buddha was asked what the true miracle was. He said the real miracle is the awakening of people's minds. It's not the flying through the air or the diving in the earth. It's the awakening of the mind, the awakening of the heart. Sometimes it's helpful to reflect on our own motivations in practice. What, what are we practicing for? Is it for the iddy of some worldly fulfillment? Or is it for the iddy of prosperity or the ability to be in a certain way in the world? Is it for the iddy of certain kinds of psychic power? Quite early on in my practice, while I was in Bodh Gaya, I was doing some metta, intensive metta, which is a concentration practice. Manindraji, who was my teacher at that time, had told me stories of all the things you can do with samadhi and powers, and so I'd be sitting doing this metta and drifting off into fantasies of everything I was going to do with my newfound psychic powers, you know, and just flying through my friend's windows and (laughs) playing the stock market. (laughs) And my mind would just spin out. (laughs) So are we practicing for those rather inferior kinds of results? Or are we really practicing for the highest it is? for the real awakening of understanding. The Buddha spoke of five fulfillments. He spoke of five idis, the bringing to completion of five things. The first of them is called the fulfillment of special knowledge of the Dhamma. And what this means, what this special knowledge means, is the understanding of all the constituent parts which make up what we call self, what we call I. Looking very carefully and exploring all of the elements of the physical body, all of the elements of the mind. The noting is a very helpful tool in terms of getting a clear picture of what the constituent elements are. It's as if in each moment with the noting, we're framing that moment of experience. And so we see very clearly. We see the sensations in the breath. We see the sensations in the body. We see the sensations in movement. As we note them, We are framing that experience, and so we get a very first-hand direct experience of these physical phenomena, these physical elements. The physical aspects are quite tangible. They're not so difficult to see. Our mind may wander a lot, but when we're actually paying attention, these physical aspects become fairly clear to the mind. Becoming aware of the mental constituents is somewhat more subtle. That is, being able to see in the moment of its arising a thought, really to see it, to understand what the nature of a thought is, not the content, not the story, but thought as a phenomenon. We look directly at the nature of an emotion the different kinds of moods that arise in the mind. These are quite subtle. takes a refined awareness and a strong attention to be able to note, to be able to frame that experience so we see it clearly. Even more subtle than the thoughts and emotions is another constituent element of mind, which is consciousness itself, that is the knowing faculty. In every moment of experience, there is knowing and an object, and the knowing is colored by various mental factors, mental qualities. The knowing may be colored by greed, by anger, by hatred, by discursiveness, by love, by compassion, by wisdom. And so what we are, what we're calling self, is really a progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, arising and passing away in every moment. As we see this, as we develop this idea of special knowledge of the Dhamma, as we begin to frame the constituents of our experience, and we see the material elements, we see the mental elements, the thoughts, the emotions, consciousness itself, it becomes increasingly clear that all that there is in any moment is the knowing and the object. There's no one behind it. There's no one to whom this is happening. What we call self, what we call I, is this progression of knowing an object, knowing an object. This understanding, in Pali it's called the insight into nama rupa, mental, physical phenomena, mental phenomena, to see that this is what makes up the sense of self. When we don't see it clearly, when we have not fulfilled this idi of understanding, what happens is that we identify with various of these constituent parts, taking them to be I, taking them to be self. And you undoubtedly have seen many times the moments of identification with a thought. I'm thinking. I'm feeling something. I'm angry. I'm happy. I'm sad. My pain. All of that is the addition through the identification process of a sense of ownership, a sense of self, which is extra. Through this idea of understanding that all there is is knowing and an object, knowing and an object. That opens up tremendous avenue of insights. The noting as a tool, is an extremely helpful technique for learning to see clearly the distinction between knowing and the object. For example, when we're experiencing some burning in the leg, we bring our mind to it and we get past the concept of leg. We're actually with the sensation and we're just feeling burning, burning, And we can recognize the burning as physical. It's a physical element. It's clear that in the noting of it, that the physical element of burning is one thing, and the mental noting is another. We really can see in that moment that there are two processes going on. The mental event of the noting and the physical event of the burning. So already we're beginning to see, to distinguish these two phenomena, mental phenomena and physical phenomena. When we see it clearly through the noting process, the mind can make the next step, and a more subtle step, to distinguish the knowing from the physical. Not only the noting, which is the word burning, burning, but the mental phenomena of knowing. And as we look carefully, moment after, n- after moment, it becomes so clear to the mind that the knowing is different than the object, that there are two things happening simultaneously. This understanding, this discrimination of knowing an object is extremely important in terms of untangling or unknotting the sense of I, the sense of self. Example that I'm not, can't remember whether I actually gave during this retreat yet or not, but for some reason I have an attraction to it to illustrate this point, so I'll mention it again if I have already. Just so you get a clearer idea how the knowing and the object are arising just together but are different. Suppose we have a corpse up here you know, when you're pumping its stomach, and the abdomen is rising, falling, rising, falling, the physical movement is there, but there's no consciousness, there's no knowing there. It's just matter. And yet when we're sitting, rising, falling, it's the same physical movement, but there's something in addition. That in addition is the knowing faculty, is consciousness. And so as you sit and as you walk, see if you can become aware that there are two processes happening, the physical process and the knowing of it. This process, this dual process, is arising together in every moment. So if you don't get it in one moment, there's another one. Another one, plenty of time to practice. This is the first idi of the Buddha's teaching this special knowledge of the Dhamma, this discrimination of nama rupa, of mental physical phenomena. The second idi, the second fulfillment of the teachings. is coming to a full understanding of the truth of suffering, of dukkha, of exploring and seeing and understanding on increasingly deeper levels the unsatisfying nature of phenomena. And we see it in different ways. We can see the unsatisfying nature very clearly when something painful is happening, when there's a painful feeling, Pain in the body, pain in the mind, it's clearly dukkha. We can see the unsatisfying nature when the mind tunes in in increasingly refined ways to the momentariness of phenomena. The fact that it's ceaselessly arising and passing without stop, without end. Often reminds me of water going over the lip of a high waterfall, continually, just without stop, without rest. That's our mind. Just every object coming and dissolving, coming and dissolving. And we see that, and we see that what this is, is this process of continual, momentary, ceaseless change. We see the unsatisfying quality of that. There's no rest, there's no peace in that. We see the unsatisfying nature on another level, this becomes even more subtle and develops as the practice goes on, is in the experience of contact with object as being a continual impingement. It's like the sense doors are continually being hit with the object. And as we get more sensitive to what the process actually is, we begin to experience each moment as this psh- is being hit by the object. There's a rather graphic image in the text which describe The awareness of contact, when we really tuned in very precisely to that moment of contact. I hope you'll manage this image. (laughs) It's it's the image of how a skinned cow would feel as it comes into contact with outside objects. You know, just, it's quite horrible, actually. You know, the rawness and the sensitivity. and the, That's what you have to look forward to in your growth in practice. Of course, there will be perfect equanimity at that time. so So you need not fear. But it really opens us. You know, it's not by... It's not some haphazard selection that made the Buddha uh, talk about suffering as the first noble truth. It's because it's so important to see it and it's so difficult to see. It takes a, a tremendous quieting down to begin to see suffering in its various aspects. It's so hard to open to the truth of suffering because mostly we are conditioned to seek refuge in very conventional ways. You know, we seek our refuge in pleasurable things. Or we seek refuge in things which are transitory and impermanent. And it's as if we blind ourselves or we don't make the necessary effort to stop to open, to sensitize ourselves enough to really feel what's going on. The paradox of it, and this is a tremendous spiritual paradox, is that the more we open, the more we know and understand this truth of suffering, the lighter the mind becomes. The mind becomes more spacious, more open, more light, happier from opening to what is true, to what is really there. We become less driven by compulsive desires and by compulsive addictions, because we see. We really see the nature of things. This is the second ide, the second completion, understanding the truth of suffering. The third iddi is bringing to completion or fulfillment the abandoning of the causes of suffering. It's not simply to see dukkha and to understand it, it's to abandon the causes of it. What are the causes of suffering? What causes suffering are kilesas. Carol talked about them last night. This is, as she mentioned, translated in various ways, these afflictions of the mind, or torments of the mind, or defilements of the mind. What is so important to understand about chileses is not that they make us bad, rather they make us suffer. It's not that the presence of them somehow is a reflection on us as people. It's just as these kilesas are strong in the mind, their nature is to torment the mind. And we see it. We see it with greed or with anger or with hatred or with fear. That's the suffering. There are different levels, different strengths of kilesa. Some are so strong in the mind that they can cause what one of the Burmese monks translated as outrageous behavior. You know, killing and stealing and breaking all the precepts. Where is that action coming from? It's coming from the mind. It's coming from the forces of these mental qualities. We protect ourselves or we abandon this level of suffering when we have a commitment to the precepts. The precepts are a great protection from outrageous behavior. We protect ourselves from these very forceful qualities in the mind. They no longer are powerful enough to actually lead us to those kinds of actions. We've brought in a stronger force. And that's the force of Sila. A middle-level strength of defilements are those unwholesome states of mind which are there and can cause us to do unwholesome actions, but not quite so outrageously. There may be unwholesome actions of body or speech, but they're not excessive. And the third and most subtle level of kilesa are those that are called latent, Latent defilements or latent afflictive tendencies. Where they're not they're not present in the moment, but given the right given the right circumstances, they will arise. In the fulfillment of this idi of the abandonment of the causes of suffering, emphasis is placed on abandoning and uprooting one particular gilesa, which is seen as the roughest and the most dangerous. Great emphasis is placed on the weakening and uprooting of this gilesa of the belief in self, in I. Because as long as the mind is afflicted by this wrong view, by this incorrect perception of things, it leads us on to perform all other kinds of unwholesome actions. We have an incorrect view of who we are, of what this mind and body are about. And so it becomes the root cause of so many other kinds of unwholesome actions, of states of mind which lead to suffering. We are developing this idi of understanding very strongly in intensive practice. the work that you're doing now is extremely powerful in weakening this root gilesa of self and there are many ways you know that you can experience it very directly in your practice reflect for a moment the difference between being lost in a thought and identifying with it and either the seeing it just as it arises or the coming out of it and being able to note thinking. Right in that moment we've gone from the creation of the sense of I, the feeling of the sense of I, to a place of openness of mind, freedom from that sense. The mindfulness, in this regard, acts as a radar. And just as we're watching, watching the breath and sensations and different kinds of emotions and moods, and if the mindfulness is there, whatever it is that's arising, we can see it, we can be with it, without identifying with it. We're really cultivating that state of bare attention, which is free of this sense of self. And so the practice, in a very deep way, is purifying the mind of this very crucial kilesa, the one that has caused so much suffering in our lives. We begin to get a sense, a taste, a flavor of what selflessness means, not theoretically, not conceptually, but in the actual moment of mindfulness of what's happening. This understanding is not new. Goes back to the time of the Buddha and for countless Buddhas before him all the way from the time of the Buddha up until now. I'd like to read to you some lines of a poem by a 14th century samurai in Japan. The name of this poem is, I have no parents. I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armor. I make benevolence my armor. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. Really, we're all samurai, making absence of self our sword. It's the sword of wisdom which cuts through ignorance, which cuts through illusion. That's the practice that we're doing in each moment. The first idi is of the special knowledge of the Dhamma, the discrimination between nama-rupa, mind and matter, seeing that distinction clearly. The second idi is the fulfillment of understanding of the truth of suffering, of opening to it, seeing it on all its different levels. The third idi is the fulfillment or the completion of abandoning the causes of suffering, which is uprooting the gilases, weakening the gileses from the mind particularly the sense of self, of I. The fourth idi of understanding, the fourth completion, is the fulfillment of coming to the end of suffering, of putting down the burden. We get different glimpses of this in our practice. We can really see the end of suffering in different ways. We can see the end of suffering just at that moment when a vanishes, dissolves. Pay careful attention to those times when the mind is caught and identified with desire or sleepiness or fear or anger or ill will, and see if you can catch that moment. You're noting it, noting it, anger, 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 and at a certain moment that anger stops. See if you can see clearly the difference in the mind state. There's a kind of tightness and contraction and burning, and then the mind is free. It's released. Right in that moment you have a taste of the end of suffering. And it's real. It's it's in our own experience. It's not some nice idea. Every time we become aware of a thought as opposed to being lost in a thought, we can experience that opening of the mind. Now an experience which is quite Familiar, I think, to most of us is that sense of having gone to the movies and having become totally absorbed in the story. And then the movie ends, and you walk outside, and it's as if there's just a, a reality shift. It's you know, this kind of little jolt, and we're back. In a sense, it's like waking up. Oh, yeah, that was just a movie. How much are we lost in the movies of our mind? And in every moment, when we see it, when we can catch it, when we can recognize it, it's like that moment of awakening. Oh yeah, it's just a thought. It's not the big drama that I thought it was. There's a moment of freedom there. There's a moment of the end of suffering. Another way we experience this iddy, the end of suffering, comes at the stage in practice called equanimity about all formations where the mind has come to a place where it is perfectly poised, perfectly equanimous. Things are coming and going and there is no movement of the mind at all. It's said that this state, this stage of insight, is comparable to the mind of an Arhant, of a fully enlightened being. We may reach it and touch it and experience it for some time and then come out of it, but that's the taste of what the mind is like of someone who is completely free. So we have a very genuine experience of the possibilities. And the last way of experiencing this fulfillment of the end of suffering is that opening to the end of all condition phenomena, going beyond all conditioning, the realization of Nibbana. fifth iri, the last of these fulfillments of the teachings, is the development of the path. Actually fulfilling all the constituents of the path which leads to the end of suffering. And it's really amazingly simple, although it takes a tremendous commitment. The path of practice is three trainings. It's the training in sila, it's the training in morality, in non-harming, and it's actually doing it, it's refining that in our lives. It's the training in concentration, in mindfulness, in meditation developing that tool, developing that strength, that power. Because it's only out of that development that the third training can happen, which is the training in wisdom. In Pali it's called Sila Samadhi Panya. Morality or non-harming, concentration and wisdom. And the wisdom that is developed is just what we talked about earlier the seeing of the constituent elements, the discrimination between consciousness and object, the awareness of the three characteristics of impermanence and dukkha, unsatisfying quality, and of selflessness. These are the five idis, the five fulfillments of practice. When these are complete, then we have brought to perfection the teachings. One of the phrases that is found very often in the text and which has always been a source of great inspiration to me, it's one of the phrases of the songs of enlightenment. You know, as people would practice and actually become free, they would utter a song. This was a song of freedom. And often one of the lines in these songs, done is what had to be done. And when I read that or hear that or contemplate that, It's such an inspiration to think that we actually can bring it all to completion. Done is what had to be done. It will be a wonderful moment when we can sing that song. So the question for us, is it possible? Can we actually do it? we can do it if we know the way to do it. So the Buddha talked not only of bringing to completion these five idis, he also talked about something which he called the idipadas, that is the road to success, the road to power, the road to fulfillment, or the basis And this is a very interesting discussion, because the is teaching about four qualities, any one of which becomes the road to success. And they're really four qualities of character, quite different from one another. Each one reflects a different kind of strength of personality. So if we can recognize which of these is our own strength, then we can build on that. We can build on our strength and actually do what has to be done. Sometimes people have the idea that dhamma practice is a living without any passion, without any fire. You know, very passive. And that is a very mistaken notion. And as we talk about these four idipadas, or roads to success, roads to power, you will see that each one of them involves a tremendous passion, a tremendous fire. It's a tremendous commitment which fills our lives. The first of them, the first quality of character, of personality, which is a strength for us, is that of zeal. Strong desire to do, desire to accomplish something. It's the feeling in us that there's nothing which can obstruct us. We have such a strong desire to accomplish that nothing becomes an obstruction. It's the feeling of not willing to be satisfied until we actually have realized our aim. Sometimes when I think of this quality, I think of the tremendous zeal and desire, in a good sense, not in a grasping sense, but in a sense of motivation, that some of the great Olympic athletes or great musicians, or people who have brought something to perfection, the amazing zeal that they have had through their lives, the commitment to training, the sense I'm going to do this, I'm going to accomplish this. And they do, based on that quality, based on that strength of mind. It's an amazingly strong sense of purpose. So that's one of the roots, one of the bases for success in practice this zeal, this strong desire, which is unswerving. The second road to success, the second road to power, is the quality in the mind of effort. A person who has this strong quality of the heart, and it really is a heart quality, is challenged by the thought, this undertaking requires great effort, I can do it. It's the mind or the heart which is not daunted by the effort required, but is actually challenged by it. It's the sense: whatever can be accomplished by effort, I can accomplish that. The image that comes to mind right now is just—it was some time ago. I can't remember exactly when I read it in the newspaper. The uh, it was an article about the great the death of the great racehorse Secretariat. You know, who was, I'm not a great racing fan, but you know, one does hear. <laughs> and that the article was really beautiful because it was it was really, it was a eulogy to the greatness of heart of this horse and how it manifests so superbly in all those races. You know, and it really is that quality of putting out effort without holding back. And it becomes becomes a tremendous strength, a tremendous power if we come from that place of heart. Deepama was an amazing example of this quality of effort. And we saw her the last time in India. After some talking, she turned to me and said, you know, you ought to sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two day, two day retreat, she meant one sitting, <laughs> just sit for two days. And I just started to laugh. <laughs> and she looked at me and with, with this tremendous kind of compassion and urging, she said, don't be lazy. <laughs> and because she had this amazing capacity for effort you know, with the kind of results that that quality, that strength of mind brings. People with this power, this characteristic, who have this strong sense of ability to make effort, they're not daunted by how long it is, how long it takes, how difficult it is, It takes months, it takes years, it doesn't matter. Because that effort is there and it's strong. There's a very strong quotation from the Bodhisattva, the Buddha before he was enlightened. He also had this, this great quality. He said, If the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. So it's, it's a wonderful quality when we have that attitude, you know, the inspiration of that energy. There's another road to success. Maybe you haven't quite found your <laughs> your road yet. This third one might appeal to you. And the third one is bringing to completion the fulfillment of all the teachings through the love of the Dhamma. Where this love of the dharma, love of the truth is so strong that it keeps our mind continually immersed in the practice, in understanding. And really, this quality, there's a great purity of consciousness in this, great purity of heart. It's a love that is extremely ardent. It's a passionate love, but not of greed and not of desire. You know, when you are first in love in the more ordinary sense, you know, you know that it's the experience of the mind being filled so much of the time with that person. this road to power, road to success, is the love of the dharma that has that level of intensity. We're always, that's what's on our mind. We're reflecting on it and we're practicing it. And the love of the dharma keeps us going. It's the sense that nothing else is of equal importance that the Dhamma is our highest love, it's of the highest value. The last of the roads to power, roads to success, is the quality of inquiry or investigation. Some people have a very strong bent in this way. Just that interest in understanding the deepest and most profound parts of the teaching, most profound aspects of the teaching, not satisfied to know just the surface of things. This is the mind which can grasp easily the immensity of samsara, you know, this round of rebirths, and the immensity of the planes of existence and the implications of that vastness of vision for our lives, for our unfolding. The potential for suffering that exists in that vastness and the possibilities for freedom in it. This is the kind of mind that takes the deepest satisfaction in just probing and investigating the deepest aspects of the teachings. A person who is endowed with any one of these four, it may be this quality of tremendous zeal, desire to accomplish. It may be that characteristic of tremendous effort, an effort that cannot be stopped. It may be the quality of this total love of the Dhamma so that we immerse ourselves in the Dhamma. And it may be the quality of this strong investigation, this strong inquiry. We want to know, we want to understand. Any one of these four can be a road, a path for us to the fulfillment of all the idis, of all the teachings. And so our work is really, in a way, to recognize where our strength lies, to practice from our place of strength, and to develop it, and to cultivate it, and to make it stronger. Because when any one of these is strong, it can also be the basis for developing the others. So the great challenge for us in our practice is to be able to understand how to work, how to do the work of awakening, to do the work of realization. And seeing that the actual path lies in bringing these qualities of heart and mind to each moment The path of awakening is moment to moment, it's right here. So can we hold the vision and be complete in our attention in the moment? Can we really be deeply inspired by what is true and seeking to understand it in the deepest way? It's not only for ourselves. We are always practicing for all beings. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.